0: invite you to open your Bibles again to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. We are in uh, that penultimate section of Ephesians, and really it's the last uh, part of Ephesians where Paul gives uh, instruction, or at least he gives exhortation here in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, 10 uh, through 18. And it's here in this last portion of Ephesians that we've been or I've been attempting to have you see the, the heaven reality, the heavenly reality of the exalted Christ. In chapter 4, we were encouraged to know that Christ had ascended far above all the heavens that might, and that he might fill all. And as that exalted Christ, as the exalted Christ, he sits above every ruler and authority, every principality and power and world forces of this darkness. And he guarantees to us the victory through his life, death, and resurrection. By his ascension and the sending of his spirit, especially upon his church, He has clothed us in himself. And this clothing of us is actually also an equipping of us for this age. And by this equipping and clothing and indwelling, we are made further fit for that blessed age to come. And so here Paul explains the extensive arrangement Arrangements the Lord has made to protect his people against the enemy's attacks. Our loving God is aware of our frailty and is aware that we are made of dust, which is why Matthew Henry says that the Christian armor is made to be worn. And there's no putting off our armor till we have done our warfare and finished our course. As one other Theologian says in commenting about us, we are but animated dust, and so it's fitting for us to be cladded with such extensive and complete armor. Here also, Christians are reminded that their battle is not against what can be seen, but it is in the spiritual realm. We like to make enemies of what we can see. We like political enemies. We like neighbor feuds. We like sibling rivalries. We like sports rivalries. We like physical enemies. And sometimes and oftentimes, we mistake that we think that these people who we've deemed our enemies are those in which we go into battle against. And yet, Christ says we are to pray for our enemies, and we will address that issue ne- uh, the next time on before you. When we look at verse 18, That it says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times. There are enemies to be prayed for, but there are also enemies to be withstood and to be resisted, and that these are the enemies. These are the enemies that uh, are spoken of. And that here is the last piece of armor is addressed, We hear Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 10 echo across our Bibles. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And so here at the end of his letter, he sets to show the Ephesians not what they need, but what they possess in Christ. Follow along as I read for us, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. The word of the Lord says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again. O Lord, as your word has been read... We ask you now that you would enlighten it to us by your spirit, for it is the sword of the spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that we, our hearts would be open to your truth so that we, your children, we, your people, we, your army, would be not just hearers of your word, but wielders of it in word and in deed. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we are. This will be, I think, the seventh time you will have this reminder. And hopefully, it's a good reminder because it is the seventh time I'm reminding you about it. That the primary question in regard to this passage is not how can I provide truth or righteousness or the gospel of peace, or faith, or salvation, or the Spirit. But the primary question is, who supplies truth? Who supplies righteousness? Who, is, who supplies the gospel of peace, of faith, of salvation, and the Spirit? And as we've been affirming these many weeks, the answer is our God, the one who provides our armor. And he does so Uh, with intention not only in its covering but in some similarly of its order for we see the first piece of armor that is provided is the girdle or belt of truth and it's positioned as the first because it's the foundation of the other pieces of armor it's what binds them together for if we have not truth What could we know of righteousness? If we have not truth, what could we know of the peace of the gospel? If we have not truth, what could we know of the shield of faith? If we have not truth, what could we know of salvation? And certainly, as we come before it this morning, where is our source of truth? It is but the word, or it is surely the word of God. And so we've been examining these pieces of armor, and we've been encouraged by them, especially as we think of the shield of faith, that it is that divine protection from God and exampled in Christ, and by it we advance. And last week we saw the usefulness of the helmet of salvation, worn, by, worn first by Christ, then given to us, and so our minds are protected from lowering our gaze to put on our hope in earth, to lowering our gaze to put our hope in earthly things, so that we would hope in better things than those which are confined within the bounds of time. And this morning, as we turn our attention from the helmet of salvation, we turn to this sword of the spirit. We'll be looking at this uh, second part of verse 17 in in three headings. It's history as it relates to the sword of the Spirit, it's nature, and it's usefulness. It's history, it's nature, and it's usefulness. As we've been going about uh, our time in the armor and, and looking at it, there's been Multiple ways we've addressed this, but ultimately we we come to understand the history of these pieces of armor. They don't just crop up in the New Testament, in Paul's writings, out of thin air. But Paul, by the Spirit, uh, borrows them or takes them and uses them properly as they uh, began in the Old Testament. As they began prophetically to show the work and person of our Savior. And so we address it this morning as we look at the sword of the spirit in its history. In our first look, we see its commendation, and we'll actually look at its mishandling. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. First, let's look at accommodation to the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, beginning in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments with the Lord your God, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, All the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. We won't fully unpack these first three b- verses, but it very seems should be very plain that there is a commendation to the commandments and statutes and judgments and previous promises that God gave the people of Israel. That they were to know them, that they were to hold them, and then they really were to use them and live in them. And so... It's commending, the Lord is commending his word to them. And so we see in verse 10, there's actually a warning that we'll eventually see was not heeded. Verse 10, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourselves, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. We know the history of the people of Israel. We know they did not heed this warning. We know that chased after the gods of the Canaanites, they, cha- they set up other high places, and they were constantly uh, doing this and and repenting and and doing it again and repenting, and but yet we see that this commendation has this warning, and then it's it's reminder of its misuse in verse sixteen. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at. Massah. Massah was uh, the place of grumbling of the Israelites for lack of water. I don't know if you remember the, uh, the travel out of Egypt of the people of Israel, but they get out of Egypt. They're delivered by God's mighty hand. They cross the Red Sea and you would think there would be rejoicing and there certainly was for a time, but then they looked around to see what they could see and they saw no water. They saw no food they began to grumble against Moses and against the Lord. They began to wonder, is the Lord even with us? And this is the testing of the Lord at Massah. And so the Lord provides graciously. He instructs Moses to uh, speak to the rock and water would come out. This was the second time. The first time he said, strike the rock. The second time he said, speak to the rock. And Moses misuses God's word, he fumbles it, he drops it, and what does he do? He strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. And so this grumbling and their their lack of trust in God's word and the promises of him to bring them into this land, and Moses' fumbling of it, instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it. They're disqualified, or at least Moses specifically, is disqualified from entering into the promised land. We see that though the word was commended to them, though they were warned not to heed, heed it, they are reminded of their misuse of it. They're also reminded of, uh, of, of further misuse in chapter 8. And not only did they, as I said, they grumbled against, uh, against the water, they grumbled against food. He says, all the commandments that I'm commanding you today, chapter 8, I don't know if I said verse 8, chapter 8, that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And so we recognize that, again, this reminds them of a time of grumbling. A grumbling where that they said oh would that we had died by the lord's hand in the land of egypt when he sat by the pot when we sat by the pots of meat when we ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us this whole assembly with hunger they were not holding on to the word of god they were not they and so the lord disciplines them so that they may understand that they were not to live according to what they can see, but according to God's word by every thing that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. As I said, we know the rest of the story from Deuteronomy, or maybe you're familiar with it. If not, spoiler alert, they go after other false gods. They forget God's promises They don't hold themselves to his word. They are unfaithful to the Lord. And they eventually are sent away into exile, both the northern and southern kingdom. Israel was supposed to be God's faithful servant, equipped with God's word to not only prosper in the land, but be a blessing to those around them. And so Israel... As God's son, as a, as a son of God, as it says in Exodus, failed. Did not wield the sword of the Spirit with accuracy, with perfection. Turn with me to Isaiah 49. These are the holy anticipations that were given to the faithful in Israel and the old covenant that come to full flower for us that we see more clearly because of the revelation of Christ and his coming. So let us not hold it fully against the Israelites that they could not see these things or at least uh, they didn't see them as clear as we do. But let us have faith to know that they were uh, able to see them as it says in First Peter Isaiah 49. So quick rough shot of Isaiah 40 through 55. It was written to the future exiles in Babylon, that their return would begin. That their return would begin a period of time before the coming of their Messiah, where their sins would be removed, and ultimately their enemies would be vanquished. And as one commentator notes, from Isaiah's perspective, the restoration after the exile inaugurates the new age. And that this first taste of salvation through God's servant Cyrus coalesces with the greater salvation that Christ, God's servant, will bring his people. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah Forty-nine. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. We see that this prophesying, at least in this uh, one place, that there would come another Israel, and his mouth would be sharp like a sword. Would be like a sharp sword. Again, Isaiah by the Spirit, or the Spirit in Isaiah. Here is here the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah. Writing the words of the Lord, not by happenstance but by deposit so that when we look to Paul utilizing the sword of the Spirit, we don't first think, what is it that we take up and we will wield? We first think, who had it? What is the history of this weapon? What is the history of this armor? And so we know that this Israel here of Isaiah 49 wielded the sword, and he would do so with expert precision, And he does so uh, primarily, or at least ultimately, or uh, in big picture, he does so in the wilderness in Matthew 4. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Hopefully you were ready for a history lesson this morning. (laughs) After Christ's baptism, it says that the that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. This baptism where a voice comes out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Important to, to catch on that this is my beloved son, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because as we see Christ fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, He then became hungry. Israel was hungry in the wilderness. Correct? Here, true Israel, hungry in the wilderness. There's a difference, though. We see in the true Israel, we don't see grumbling and complaining. We see what Israel should have done. They should have wielded the sword. For Israel was... a Was attended to by their own flesh and their own appetite, and they could not, they didn't overcome it. They grumbled against the Lord. Here, Christ is not confronted just by his own appetite, his human appetite, but he is confronted by the tempter, by the evil one, by that great serpent, by Satan. And this is what he says If you are The son of God, command these stones become bread. If you are the son, exercise your divine power. What was spoken of him at his baptism, this is my beloved son. Satan comes and says, if you are that son, exercise that power now. What does Christ say? It is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Verse 6, Satan tempts him again. He takes him into the holy city and him stands on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here now, Satan thinks he's picking up on the game. And he says, let me quote to you some scripture out of Psalm 91. If you are the son of God, are you show display that you are beloved of the father by throwing yourself down and he will rescue you. Jesus said, on the other hand, it is written You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. He quotes to him, Deuteronomy 6, 16, verses 8 and 9. A third time, the devil takes him now to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. If you are the son, rule the nations. I will give them to you, Only bow down to me. Jesus said, "Go, Satan, for it is written, "You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only." Deuteronomy 6:13. "Here, true Israel comes into the wilderness, hungry. and yet wielding the sword of the spirit. And so he quotes from Israel's book, Deuteronomy. It was his book, but Israel's book also. And he wields the sword, and what does it say? Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. I agree with the commentator that said that the word of God is thus the sword of the spirit by which the spiritual foe is chopped down. The captain of salvation set the example and once and again and a third time did he repel the assault of the prince of darkness by three brief and simple citations from scripture. Jesus might have used any other form of deliverance. He could have sent Satan away with a word. But he chose that in order that we who were to come after might know that the devil could certainly be, de- be defeated with the word of God. And so we have the history of the sword of the spirit first wielded by our divine warrior. First, first wielded by uh, by our King, our Messiah, by the Son of God. And so when uh, Paul tells us and exhorts us that we are to uh, take up the sword of the Spirit, connected to the take of the helmet and the sword of the Spirit, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we recognize that He does so not in a vacuum, vacuum, but He does so with the foundation that it is ours in Christ. For what Christ has, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians one. And so it's with this knowledge that, uh, of its history, that now as we look at its nature, we may come to eventually come to understand its usefulness to us. It's kind of like uh, when you first learn to use a firearm. There's oftentimes a lesson of its capabilities, sometimes of its history, why it looks like this, and how it was improved from previous models. And only after a number of lessons, if your instructor is Sergeant Hamblin, will he let you touch it and fire it. Because he knows if he just hands it to you, you're just going to spin that thing over your head and Yosemite Sam it. So it's important for us to understand its history. So that when we look now at its nature, that it provides to us the platform by which we can speak of its usefulness. So its nature. It says that it is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Here we can observe, at the very least, we can observe the missions of the Godhead. It is the word that comes from the Father. So the word of God, God is normally used by Paul and equivocates God with Christ. But he, he normally uses God as a, a shorthand for the Father So, it's the word of God or the word that comes from the Father. And we recognize and we know that in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, it is the word that comes from the Father, it is the word that assumes our nature. It is also the word that assumes our nature and further reveals God to us. We know, or many of us know, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as, the, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have the Word that comes from the Father, the Word of God, the Word that assumes our nature and further reveals God to us, the Word. And then we have, it's the Word that is also given the Word. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. So we have Father and Son both connected to the word of God, and it is the word that was given by the Spirit. Second Peter 1, verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We see just a... A drop, a pin drop of the missions of the Godhead. That we can even from this see their eternal relations. That is the God, it is the Father who begets, it is the Son who is begotten, and is the it is the Spirit who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And here connected. The, the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So it is with these missions we would see that we come to the Word of God, we would rely upon the eternal preceding Spirit to illuminate it to us. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're trying to grasp something of the nature of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And I hope we're seeing that it is of Trinitarian revelation. It is of the Godhead revelation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit... For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So when we come to the Scriptures, when we come to the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that one, we would come with an understanding we hear from the Godhead, and that we come with an understanding of a reliance upon God, Appropriately, the Spirit of God to illuminate it to us so that we would hear the voice of God consistently throughout it, beginning to end. We would not attempt to chop off half our Bibles because the God of the Old Testament sure seems like an angry God, but the God of the New Testament, man, I really like him. He's a lot nicer. It's the same God, it's the same voice, it's the same message. We must see the nature of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that the nature of this this weapon is word and spirit. We have the words of God that reveal to us the son of God made alive by the spirit of God. So that we have the nature, we, we, we see the history, it's wielding of it by our, by our champion, our, uh, the, the captain of our salvation. We see its nature in the, its revelation to us, that it is of God, that it is uh, provided to us by God, so that we rely on him to understand it, so that now we may understand something of its usefulness. First, in its form, its, in its um, metaphorical form as a sword, that it's a fitting weapon for the task. For our struggle is not one of distance. The type of weapon was one of close contact. There were weapons of the ancient world that were more of a distance sort, arrows and javelins and slings. But the weapon utilized, or the weapon um, illustrated was one of close contact. That is our fight in defense against spiritual enemies is one compared to the one-to-one face-to-face type. A lot of people get on the internet, get on their phones and get on social media and they're at war with somebody and they're lobbing their distance jar- jabs at other people. They think they're 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 fighting the good fight, but we must first recognize that this sword is one of close encounter. This is one done in the most intimate moments. This is one done one to one face to face. Ian de Guede says that the final part of the armor of God is not a high tech long range weapon, but an old fashioned down and dirty short sword. This means that if we are going to defeat our temptations and seek to live fruitful, holy lives, then we need to get up close and personal and set to work with the sword of the Spirit. Like ancient warfare, the struggle for sanctification is a fierce, messy, and intensely personal affair. An intensely personal affair. Let's look at in closing as we think of its usefulness and get a little bit more direct that tome to the word of god in psalm 119 i'll be reading it from beginning to end some people some people know their bibles let's look beginning in verse 33 First, in order to wield this sword effectively, we must first be wounded by it. It is a two-edged sword. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Consider these, just these couple of verses, or these, uh, this, this triplet of verses. It's, it's all throughout Psalm 119, these, uh, these lofty statements of, of uh, the psalmist's desire to obey God and his commandments. So let us recognize that 33 through 35 leads to 39 through 41. Look at 39. Turn away my reproach, which I dread. Reproach, turn away my disobedience. Turn away my not, not obeying your commandments, not following your law, not loving it with my heart. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. First, in order to wield this sword effectively, we must first be wounded by it. We must read God's word and be cut, be cut to the heart to know that we do not live up to the righteousness of God. We cannot earn our salvation from a holy and righteous judge. We fall terribly short. Matter of fact, we're condemned by our first parent in it. Hebrews 4, after describing the word of God as sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide joint and marrow, body and soul, the writer reminds us of our advocate. Very interesting, after saying, this is a sharp two-edged sword, it's going to cut deep. First, in order to wield this sword effectively, we must first be wounded by it. Then the sword will be an answer to us in our time of testing. Look at Psalm 119, verse 43. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. So I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I will walk in liberty and i will seek your precepts i will also speak of your testimony before kings and shall not be ashamed i shall delight in your commandments which which i love he he says that it is to be a comfort in time of testing excuse me it will be an answer in time of testing that he, that you will speak your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed We may not stand before kings or governors, city council, maybe local magistrates if you drive too fast. But we'll stand before our neighbors, before our unbelieving family members. We'll speak to our unbelieving children. Let the word of God, let the sword of the Spirit be an answer in these times of testing. It's, it's an understanding that uh, we see that there is a reproach that can be brought upon us, and it's him who reproaches. The, is that if you are a child of the King, right? The question is, is that if you are this King, maybe you're 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 speaking of things, and and they they know of you. Your children know your failings. Your neighbor may know of of how you slipped in the front yard or through the front door or in the backyard and gave your children a little what for with your tongue. Maybe you sped too fast. (laughs) Maybe there's other ways in which you've displayed that you are a sinner before an unbelieving world. And you fall under a potential reproach. If you are a child of the King, how could you act this way? Certainly we should be penitent or repentant of those things, but consider that great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, and Christian's battle with Apollyon. Apollyon says, You have already been unfaithful in your service to him, so why do you think that you will receive his wages? Christian answers, In what, O O Apollyon, have I been unfaithful to him? And then Apollyon recounts to him all his failures and all his faltering in 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 the story thus far. And Christian replies, all this is true and much more which you have left out. But the king whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, I acquired these infirmities in your country and I have groaned under them and have been sorry for them, and have attained pardon from my king. And so the sword will be an answer in our time of testing. It will also be a comfort in our affliction. Look at verse 49 of Psalm 119. Remember the word to your servant in which you have made, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. My comfort in time of affliction is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. First Peter, writing in the Spirit, in verse, chapter 5, verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit, On the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The sword will be a comfort in your time of affliction. We are to take and wield the sword, that is to know the word, so that as we are afflicted by the many things in this life that afflict us, we may remember these awesome promises, that there is a work being accomplished in us, and that it will be completed, and that our suffering will seem like a little while suffering, as Peter says. And that there will be eternal glory in Christ, perfect, confirmed, and strengthened, and established in us. Finally, and it's finally, it is to be the essential to our repairing from battle and preparation for the next. This is the Lord's day. This is the day of rest and preparation. Here we rest in the Lord's salvation by the Spirit's work through the ordinary means. And it is by through these means that we are built up. So we come here as weary pilgrims. We come here, embattled soldiers of Christ. We've dealt with our sin all week, and even we maybe continue to deal with it this morning in in a very uh, forefront way. And we are invited to come and rest and also prepare. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Oh, what wonderful privilege it is to come and worship the Lord on his day and to be engrossed in God's word, to be soaked in it, to richly dwell in it, to sing of it, to hear of it, to pray according to it, to read it, so that whatever you do in word or deed, you would do all in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks through him to God the Father. Oh, what wonderful blessings are afforded to us by the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. What protection and what effective armor and weapon it is. And what of Christian in his fight with Apollyon. Then Apollyon almost pressed him to death so that Christian began to despair of his life. Then Apollyon exclaimed, I am sure of you now, but as God would have it while Apollyon was fetching his last blow to make a full end of him, Christian nimbly stretched out his hand for his sword and grasped it, saying, and quoting Micah 7, 8, Do not gloat over me, O my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise again. And with that, he gave Apollyon a deadly thrust, which made him fall back as one who had received a mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, rushed at him, saying, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And with that, Apollyon spread his dragon wings and sped away so that Christian saw him no more for a season. Let us pray. O oh Lord, to think about your wonderful blessing of armor that you have given us in Christ, to think that it is tried and tested by our savior and found worthy to withstand the blows of the evil one, to help us discern even our thoughts and the turnings of our hearts so that we would be protected, Lord, preserved for that final day and that next stage. O Lord, may we rightly grasp the sword of your spirit, which is the word of God, and so chase away our enemies, which are not flesh and blood, but are princes of uh, principalities and powers, and sometimes even the evil one. Victory in Christ is afforded to us, Let us hope in that. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ. Amen. Amen. On these mornings where we don't have the Lord's Supper, I always have to check my order of worship.